The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Good morning. Thank you for joining us here. Thank you for joining us online. You heard in the video announcements, one of the good things that we're seeing happen is lots of kids come back to Temple Bible Church. And so we need volunteers to help disciple children on Sunday mornings. You can get information on our website. You can go talk to Julie Martin this morning about that. If you were able to volunteer, we would love for you to do so. We're in 1 Corinthians 14, ending the chapter this week. Last week, Tim Cartwright said that because I get to lay out the sermon outlines that I gave myself a chapter on love and him one on tongues and prophecy. I just want to clarify I gave him the one on tongues and prophecy because him being from Philadelphia, I assumed you would need an interpreter this week, okay? And I gave myself the very easy task of a text that says women should keep silent in church. So what I would like you to do is take a walk with me to Corinth this morning and let's just pretend we're first century, we're walking from Isthmia to Corinth. It's about an hour and 40 minute walk, which works great because I got an hour and 40 minute sermon for you, okay? And so as we're walking and we come into the outskirts of Corinth, we stumble upon the synagogue of the Hebrews. Now here is what might be left of that. This could be from that very synagogue. This could be from one that was there in the second century. There's not much left of it, but there was a synagogue of the Hebrews in Corinth. That's where Paul initially went. And, and as we stumbled upon that synagogue, let me tell you what we would see as we walked in. And I think it really matters for unlocking 1 Corinthians 14, specifically 1 Corinthians 11 through 14. It's this chiastic that Paul does where he begins by speaking about women in the church, then he talks about gifts like prophecy and tongues, and then right in the middle, what's most important is love. And then he talks about prophecy and tongues again, and he ends 14 by speaking about women in the church. And I, I think what we would see in that first century synagogue would really help us understand a bit better about a lot that's going on in the church in Corinth. If we walked in, what we would see is a, a reader of the prayers who might be reading Psalms, but most weeks would be reading a series of 19 prayers that the Jews read. Some of them they called eulogies, others were benedictions. And they read these prayers to begin their service. And then there would be seven readers of the law. Now a lot of these people would be 13 to 17 year old boys and men that are reading the law, really most of them, if they were reading in a synagogue, they would have the entire first five books of the Old Testament memorized so they'd be reciting as much as they're reading. But you've got seven readers of the law and then after that, a reader of the prophets. So you've had nine people speak so far. It would have all been read in Hebrew and Palestine and not all the people spoke Hebrew so there would be an interpreter of the tongue so that people could understand in their native tongue. Outside Palestine, throughout the rest of the Roman world where there was a synagogue, it would have been read in Greek, the language of the empire, but not everybody would understand Greek, so there would have been an interpreter of the tongue. He was called a methurgamon, and he would targum or orally interpret what was said so that the people could understand it, and then finally there would be a 
preacher from the congregation of the synagogue and the elders would weigh what he said to see if it matched the prophets. So if we, in our first century travels on that Saturday morning, if we stepped out of the synagogue and we walked a little further, we might stumble upon the house or the courtyard or perhaps even the meeting hall and there's the church in Corinth and they're reading this letter from their friend Paul. And let's just imagine as we walk in, they're reading the text that we have this morning, right toward the end of the letter. What then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be only one or two or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there's no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one that all may learn and be encouraged, and the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets." For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came, or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge the things I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently in order. God, we pray today that that we would hear the word and that we would be shaped by it, transformed by it for our good, for this beautiful thing that you're working out in the world through your people, the church. And God, I pray that we would be a place that when we gather, it would be for the equipping of saints, for the works of service to build up the body of Christ. God, I pray as we gather, we do so in peace and in order that we would do so to magnify your glory, not to magnify our gifts. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, early Christian worship would have been largely modeled after this synagogue concept that we've learned about. It makes a lot of sense that it would because what early Christians had in the first century was the Old Testament. They had the law and the prophets. Now, it's different now for churches. It's different for synagogues too for a variety of reasons, including size and culture and other factors. But I do think we can get better insight into what was going on in Corinth by understanding this synagogue model where you've got multiple people reading multiple things from the law and then there's a reader of the prophets but not everyone can understand because it's not in their language so someone may have a gift where they can speak in another tongue and others can understand. So we're gonna look at this text this morning in three parts. We're gonna look at everything for edification, everything in context, and everything in order. And we're gonna do that so that we can understand the word of God and be shaped by it. That is our practice. So first, everything for edification. Paul says, 
when you come together, each one, everybody really wanted to have a part in this. They were smaller groups, so it might have been reasonable. But he says each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. They all had something that they all wanted to do. They felt like they all had a lot of gifts and they're enjoying their own giftedness rather than edifying the, the church. And so Paul says, let's slow down. There's, there's no order to this. It didn't have to be exactly like the synagogue model because we're not under the law. We're not Jews. We're in Christ. But there did have to be an order. And then, just like in the synagogue, there was a weighing of what was said by those who had been the elders of the community. There's a weighing of what is taught. There's a weighing of doctrinal teaching. So there's some important things to note. In verse 26, 27, and 28, when, when we think about this edification, Paul speaks about tongues. We have a revelation, a tongue, an interpretation. If any speak in a tongue, let there only be two or three at most, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there's no one to interpret, let each keep silent in the church. So a couple of things. First, 1 Corinthians 14, 1 Corinthians 12 as well. Tongues there has to be rooted in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, the reversal of Babel and a fulfillment of the prophecy in Joel where God's going to pour out his spirit on sons and daughters, and, and they, they will speak these prophetic words. Peter even quotes Joel chapter two in Pentecost, and so what's happening in Acts chapter 14 can be one of two things, and it can be tongues for an unbeliever or tongues for the edification of a church, both being this miraculous gift from God. There are two ways that the Bible speaks of this, but it never does speak of an ecstatic babbling or ecstatic babble as a biblical tongue. Well, one way I want to describe that is for unbelievers. 1 Corinthians 14, 22 says, thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but unbelievers. So Brandon Brewer, our missions pastor, he was doing ministry with his family, his wife Sarah, their kids in the Arab Gulf. Danny Cunningham is there visiting him and one of Brandon's friends named Hamis comes over to visit and Amis asks about a painting on the wall, and it's a painting that is meant to be there so that Muslims would ask questions about Jesus. And as Hamis asks a question, Brandon said, I began to share the gospel, starting in creation and going to Christ. And he said, I don't know how, it's never happened since then in that same way, with that same clarity, but I began to share and speak Arab words that I didn't understand. I hadn't learned them yet. But I was sharing it with clarity and he could understand it. And he said it was only weeks later when I was in class and we began to go over these words and they were new to me and I thought back, way I, way I said those things. See, for an unbeliever, God gave him the gift of tongues. And I asked Brandon, I said, so Brandon, would you say you have the gift of tongues? And he said, I'm, I'm not sure I'd say that. I had it that night, I think. I had it for that moment to share Christ with that person. I can't explain it. I don't know how it happened, but I believe God was there acting for his glory in an unreached context. That's one example. The, the other is that in these churches, they would have been coming together 
because of a Jewish diaspora in the synagogue, because of the diaspora that was the Roman world and people would be sold into slavery, moved around, go wherever there's work. And so people are coming together in Christ and they're losing family, they're losing friends, they're losing employers and they're coming together and they don't have anybody. And the scripture that they have, the Old Testament, is gonna be read in one language And there's gonna be someone who interprets. Sometimes people get a gift to do that so the people can understand the word of God. So 26 and 27, they don't make a law. It's not a law that you can't speak in church, but what he says is what you do ought to be done for building up. It's not that we look exactly like the synagogue model, but what we do is we gather, we do to build up one another. I I loved last week when Tim explained what prophecy looked like and how that happened in order. And he said, in our context, often it happens in homes. We study the word together in small groups and you might hear the struggle someone's going through with the word or in a prayer request and you have this word to give them. Well, those words are always weighed by the word, but we share encouragement as the Lord impresses that upon our spirit. So Paul says, let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh in on what is said, if a revelation is made, another sitting there, let the first be silent, for you can all prophesy one by one that all may learn and be encouraged. And then he says, and the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets, for God is not a God of confusion, but a God of peace. Well, I gotta tell you, when I read that, the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets, I thought, what in the world does that mean? And the easiest thing from my 21st century English perspective for Paul to do is in verse 29 when he says prophets and the two times in verse 32 when he says prophets that he would use the same Greek word each time. Um, But Paul being Paul and not really caring what I think uses the same root but three different endings, three different variations of the word prophets. In 29, it's prophetai. In 32, it's prophetan and then prophetize. When he says the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets, and I thought, what in the world does that mean? And can I get any clarity? And so you look back at the Greek, you look at commentaries, and they all say, well, it can mean one of two things, that the spirit of prophets are subject to those that are gifted in the church that would be weighing their prophecy according to the prophets. And so I called friends who speak Arabic and said, hey, what's the Arabic to English translation? So maybe that'll give some clarity. Because sometimes Greek to English, there's not an exact word. Or what's the Ukrainian or Russian translation to English? Or what's the Kenya Rwanda or Swahili translation to English? And, And they all say the same thing. Well, it means one of these two things, but Certainly it means that order ought to be brought about and ultimately that the subject of the prophets in the church, that that their spirits are subject to the prophets. If somebody says, hey, I think I've got a word for you, encouragement from you, it's gotta line up with the scripture. God's not gonna speak. His spirit will not speak in contradiction to or different from his word because God is not a God of confusion, he's a God of peace, so everything has to be done in order. Everything has to be done in order. When you, when you, think, about, when you think about this, this would be so important for the Corinthian church, and here's why. 
They don't have the New Testament. This letter that we're studying 2,000 years later, this is the fifth book of the New Testament written. You got James, you got Galatians, you got First and Second Thessalonians, and they might not have had a single copy of any of those books. We don't know. We know they would have had the Old Testament. And so they're studying the Old Testament prophets in light of the resurrection of Jesus because though they don't have the word, they do have the spirit to illumine their hearts and minds to understand what the scripture was saying about Jesus Christ, just like Jesus did with these brothers on the road to Emmaus. And so from the Old Testament prophets, they're getting these words and they're trying to share with one another and learn with one another and grow. But as they do this, it's got to be subject to the word. It can't be that I'm really just leaning on my giftedness and hoping in my giftedness and that like I got a word from God and it doesn't matter what anybody else says. Eugene Peterson says, says about this that the task is urgent. It's clear that we live in an age where the authority of scripture in our lives has been replaced by the authority of the self. We are encouraged on all sides to take charge of our lives and use our own experience as authoritative text to, to which we live by. So here's a problem with that. Maybe you've never experienced anything like what 1 Corinthians 14 is talking about and so you go, well, I've never experienced it, it can't happen. Or maybe you've experienced something it's not talking about and you go, I'm gonna match my experience to the text. What I've done must be this. Well, no, no, no. Though the world would tell us to use our own experience as authoritative, we submit ourselves and our experience to the text. The alarming thing is how extensively this spirit has invaded the church. He says, I more or less expect the unbaptized world to attempt to live autonomously. But not those of us who confess Jesus as Lord and Savior. He says, I'm not the only one to notice that we're in this odd and embarrassing position of being a church in which many among us believe ardently in the authority of the Bible, but instead of submitting to it, we use it, apply it, and take charge of it endlessly, using our own experience as the authority for how and where and when we use it. One of the most urgent tasks facing the Christian community today is to counter this idea of self-sovereignty by reasserting what it means to live these holy scriptures from the inside out, instead of using them for our sincere and devout but still self-sovereign purposes, we've got to submit to God. Everything for edification, and because it's for edification, we get edified by the word. Jesus said, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So God's a God of peace, not of confusion. So we surrender our gifts to what the scripture says about them. Everything for edification and then everything in context. Everything in context. So Paul then says, as in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission as the law also says. If there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. So no controversy there, right? So here's what people do with this text. People do one of two things with this text. They, in this awful, horrible, weaponizing and misogynistic way, they go, you see, there's what the Bible says, ladies, you just stay home and cook. And it's just ugly, it's awful. 
And then on the other side, what people will do is they'll go, well, no, no, no. In 1 Corinthians, he said women can pray and prophesy. So there's absolutely no restriction at all. We just disregard this as cultural. And both of those things seem to be agenda-driven and missing the context. There's one or two things, this over-realized gender distinction that sometimes might happen by mistake but often is misread selfishly by men and weaponized to, quote, keep women in their place in a way that does not reflect the gentleness or love or grace of Jesus Christ. But then there's this other side. It's a misapplication of Galatians 3.28 where Paul says, in Christ there's no Jew, there's no Greek, there's no slave, there's no free, there's no male or female for we are all in Christ. It's what Don Carson calls an overemphasized eschatology. We're looking to this time when there is no distinction. In heaven they'll neither be married or given in marriage. But there are still some roles that are distinct according to the scripture for the church So neither of those is actually correct. So what we've got to understand is that content without context is meaningless. What's the context and what does it mean? People like to get rid of the wrinkles that make this text seem inconsistent or unharmonious. What we're gonna do is look at patterns, look at echoes, look at repeated themes. And what one author calls this swarming complexity of lived truth, not just a bunch of facts to file away. So what I did is, is I, I called some elders' wives and said, hey, what do you think this text means? I would love to hear from you as I prepare to study. What do you think this text means? And I heard some great things that I'm gonna share with you today, but the first thing I heard from one of those elders' wives was this. She said, well, I was studying this last night, Chase, and first said, I don't think it means that women can never speak in the church, women speak at, at TBC in a variety of ways, but she said, I just read it and I thought, okay, God, what if it does mean this? What if this means I can never talk in church? What if that's what that's saying? And she said, and I just thought, well, God's good and I've got to surrender to Jesus, even in the most uncomfortable places in scripture. So if it means that, I'll submit to it. Then she said, but I don't think that's what it means. And I said, well, I, I don't either. And I'll tell you why I don't think it means that. There are churches that do. There are places you could go in Temple, Texas this morning and just because of, of the fact that you're a female, when you walk in what they call the sanctuary, what we call the auditorium, the expectation is that you would be silent and literally you don't say hello to the friend next to you. Which doesn't seem to be what this is saying. Well, why doesn't it seem to be what this is saying? Because in In the beginning of this section, in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says to ladies, when you pray and prophesy, have your head covered. 1 Corinthians 11, 3, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. So the assumption is that ladies would be praying and prophesying. If you look in Acts chapter 21, you've got Philip, the evangelist, and he has these four daughters who prophesy. You've got Priscilla and Aquila who are doing frontline evangelism with Paul, and they're sharing the gospel with new believers together, training people to know about Jesus Christ. You've got the Samaritan woman that TJ mentioned, who tells this story. 
to her village. You've got Timothy's mother and grandmother. Even Chloe in this letter, 1 Corinthians 1.11, Paul says, I've heard from Chloe's people, which I love that phrase. It's like Chloe told Paul, my people are gonna talk to your people. There's division, there's a problem. And that sparked the writing of this letter. She was a friend of Paul. She felt comfortable with her people talking to Paul about this divisive issue. Well, what does this mean? See, I think it's related to the authoritative teaching of the church. I think it's related to the authoritative teaching of the church because some sort of prohibition like this is stated three times in the New Testament, one in 1 Timothy 2, 9 through 15, then this prohibition about how prophecy or prayer ought to happen in 1 Corinthians 11, and then this passage as in all the churches. And in each of these things, kind of three things happen. One is, is this word disgrace is used. We're not like culture. We look different. Our our lives are ordered different. Our lives are shaped different. We don't get our moorings from the world. We get them from the word of God, even when it's difficult. So for prophets in 1 Corinthians 14, they're told there's a time to be silent. For these tongue speakers, there's a time to be silent. And for women, it said there's this time to be silent. And he says, this is the practice in all the churches. There's this universal tie to it. And it's a tie to creation, an appeal to creation. Well, why an appeal to creation? Because all of this story fits in this grand story God is telling. And right from the beginning, God wants to do something beautiful through men and women to fill the earth with his image. And there's an order to that. There's a way that that happens. Genesis 1, 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Well, then again, in creation, in Genesis 2.18, the Lord God said, it's not good that man should be alone. So God made man out of the dust of the ground, and he says, I'll make him a helper fit for him. So out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called them, that was the creature's name. He gave names to all the livestock and all the beasts of the field, but for Adam... There was no helper found fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed it up in place with flesh, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into the woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And there in creation, you can see that God makes both of them. He makes them distinct, different. They're going to complement one another. They're going to serve one another. They're going to love one another. And out of this created order, God is doing something beautiful. He's doing something wonderful. Well, what people tend to do instead of seeing this beautiful and wonderful thing that woman is made from man in the text is, is they divide. People get on one side of this argument and they present a set of facts. People get on the other side of the argument, they present a set of facts, but they don't treat one another like brothers and sisters. In fact, maybe some of you, when you hear even that I've said, yes, there are moments in the life of Temple Bible Church when women speak, and that's a good 
you're really bothered by it. I've heard others say when, when, when we would speak that according to our understanding of scripture, there's any prohibition at all, is that churches like that might be well-meaning, but they are terribly mistaken. What is all of this together saying? No matter how uncomfortable it makes us, no matter how far it stretches our understandings and imaginations, what we wanna know is what does the scripture teach and how can we best practice it? So for us, because of this root in creation, this order that's given by God, we say that among mixed adult groups and on Sunday morning, we ask men to lead in those environments. Now, why do we do that? Because when we look at scripture, we look at what is described and we look at what is prescribed. We look at what is described and it teaches us, it informs us, it shapes the way that we think. And then we look at what is prescribed and we go, we must obey what the scripture tells us there. That's a prescription. It's something God is telling us to do. So how do we work this out at Temple Bible Church? Well, there's a variety of ways. I've heard one person say it this way, that whatever gifts women have for the glory of God that can be used according to scripture, I want them to use it, and I trust the elders to say what that looks like at Temple Bible Church. So one of the ways it looks is Titus chapter two, older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanders or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, submissive to their own husbands, so that the word of God may not be reviled. There's this great opportunity that we have and we see it played out at TBC where women are teaching women, women are teaching children. Again, we need volunteers and you've heard us speak about that and I want you to understand when, when we talk about discipling kids for the glory of God, you are raising up the next generation of believers. And it's such an important responsibility. Now I've heard people hear this and and say things like this about churches who work this out the way we do, they'll say, well, this just relegates women to women and children. Now, I know they don't mean it this way, but when you hear that, that kind of devalues women and children, right? Like the, the privilege to teach other ladies about who Jesus is and what he's called us to do, the privilege to disciple children. The world doesn't value that very much, but God really, really does. So first, we gotta be careful we don't exalt any gift above the giver and his people. In Corinth, they were doing that with tongues and with prophecy, and in Western church, we do that with teaching and we can treat it like this. We can see all the trees of the garden from which we can't eat and we see the one that we can't and that's the one we focus on. When God's made a really, really good garden, surely God didn't say this. See, these people valued this gift above community and I hope we don't do that. I don't see us doing that. I see the work that ladies do at TBC and I'm just blown away by it. I think about, you come in TBC and Creek's out on Wednesday morning, you're gonna see Sarah Bill, Suzanne Steves and Cassie Fothergill there and they're serving widows and caring for widows, teaching widows the word, they're learning the scripture together. You walk in a place and you would think it might be full of sorrow and it's full of joy and laughter. 
and blessing from God as these ladies are being conformed to the image of Christ. On Thursday mornings, ladies teach one another. I'll slip in the back and listen sometimes, and I hear good, good teaching. My favorite Bible teacher is Laura Bowers. She told me not to say that, so I didn't say it the hour she was here. But I've listened when she's taught the ladies, and I've just thought, man, that's so encouraging. It's so challenging. And ladies are being trained to teach. It's this beautiful and good thing. Students that work at Impact. I I, I talked to a young couple last Sunday night. I was at the reception for Shannon Sword's daughter's wedding. And there's a young couple there that they're mobilizing other believers. They're in college or just finished college. Grew up at TBC. And one day they'll launch to go overseas and uh, they, they're both in College Station right now doing great work with another church there. And they would tell you that, that it impacts through male and female volunteers that were teaching them the word of God. They got a heart for missions. They got a heart for missions. The one thing that we would say is in mixed groups of adults that men are to lead in small groups and Sunday school classes and here on Sunday morning. Now it's not that we don't discuss the word together in small groups and Sunday school classes. We learn from one another, we challenge one another, we encourage one another. But yes, there's a leader, there's an order that we hope is shaped by the community and shaped by the word. Our elders spent about 18 months studying this subject and praying together, discussing, reading books from a variety of views on the subject. And we updated our our statement on the role of women with a preamble as well. If you're interested in looking at that, you can do so on our website. What we want is that everything to be done for edification and everything to be done in a proper biblical context and then everything to be done in order. Paul says everything is to be done in order. So you might read this as a tongue speaker or a prophesier and go, I want my chance to speak. Let's see, whether it's tongues or prophecy or gender or any number of any things, when God says there has to be order, we've got to surrender to him collectively. He says, was it from you that the word of God came or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge the things I'm writing to you or command of the Lord. Paul's teaching them even now, this, this letter is scripture. This is from God. See, things had become chaotic. Some would say that it was the epitome of the fall in the midst of the church. Others would say it was more like pre-creation, when there was just chaos. See, in Genesis 1, we're told that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. It was this dark and chaotic moment, and God spoke into it. He spoke into it and he brought order, and he brought goodness to it. In fact, if you were to start in Genesis 1 and read, God said, let there be light. And seven other times, eight in total, we read in the creation account, God said. And at the end of God saying, what we find there is a a man and a woman together, male plus female, meant to image God together in all the earth. And it was good and it was beautiful. And was that the first marriage? Yes. 
Was that also the first community of people who were to surrender to God and be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth? Yes. So as men and women under God's authority, we wanna surrender to the word. So my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. So as men and women under God's authority, we seek to show the world the image of God that is Jesus Christ together, serving one another in love. Now we've seen throughout the letter to the church at Corinth that they've struggled with that. They've moved away from the written word that they have, so much so that they're idolatrous, they're sleeping with one another in inappropriate ways. They're not considering the lordship of Jesus Christ. So Paul says everything has to be done decently in order. Well, why? Chapter 15 is the answer because Jesus Christ rose from the dead. That just as Jews surrendered to the law in the synagogue model, in the church, we surrender to Jesus because he rose from the dead. So the next couple of weeks, we get to look at that resurrection. Paul's gonna bring that back to them very soon. So let's pray. Well, God, we surrender ourselves to you. And Lord, we thank you for the word of God that teaches us truth and directs our affections to Jesus Christ. And God, I pray that we would be people who walk not in pre-creation or in the fall, but that we would walk as new creation in Christ because that's what we are, the redeemed people of God. And you've set this order to our lives that is a good and beautiful and different picture than what the world sees. When we've got redeemed men and women loving one another, serving one another, complimenting one another in Christ and according to the scripture. And so God, as we, as fallible human beings, seek to work that out and understand your word and see more and more and more how your body can use their gifts for your glory at Temple Bible Church, God, would you guide us? Would you guide us to be fruitful and multiply and make much of Jesus Christ in our city and in all the world, not consumed with our giftedness, but consumed with you, the giver of all good things. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.